This is the Behind Enemy Lines podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the inside track on Liverpool FC's next opponents. Guy Clark here. Welcome to the Behind Enemy Lines podcast on the Blood Red channel. With the Reds' top four hopes flickering following draws with both Leeds and Newcastle, Jurgen Klopp's men this afternoon head to Old Trafford. Back in January at Anfield, it was a meeting of the top two. Liverpool's title defence has crumbled a long way since then, while United's focus has switched to European matters. Coming up, we'll get into the European Super League fallout from down the East Lanks, whether or not Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is proving to be a steady hand at the wheel, and if Paul Pogba is finally living up to the hype. Joining me to get into all of that is the Manchester Evening News' senior football writer, Tyrone Marshall. Tyrone, how are you keeping? Yeah, not too bad, all things considered. Guy, uh, surviving, which is about all we can ask for at the moment. That, that is the uh, that is the main thing. And I have to say, for Manchester United, uh, as I said, they're right at the top. In January, it was a meeting of the top two. United not still top anymore, but they've kind of held their pace through the course of the season, albeit obviously Man City have come up on the rails and kind of just taken it away from everyone. Yeah, they, they have really. I, I think United would be disappointed they didn't make City work harder for it. Um, I mean, City's run of form and their winning run blew everyone at the park, really. But it, it coincided at a time where United just stumbled, really, and lost at home to Sheffield United, drew at home to Everton, drew away at West Brom. And they kind of got in a position after that game at Liverpool and in the week before that, when they'd won at Burnley to go top of the league, they got in a position to challenge. And then within a month, the challenge was over, really. And part of that was down to City, but part of it was was United as as well. And it kind of all played into this narrative that was unfolding last night about their their four semi-final defeats, then, you know, they went top of the league and immediately got a bad case of vertigo and, and started throwing in some some poor results. So I, I think they're disappointed they haven't made City work harder for it. But, you know, the, the mantra has been progress, really. It's, you know, it's not a word United fans particularly want to hear. It, it's not a word you associate with United. You know, United are there for, for winning and winning trophies. But if you look at it in, in pure league terms, that they're going to finish second, which is progress. They're going to add on. 12 to 15 points to last season's tally by the looks of things, which is progress. So, all in all, you know, you have to say on, on the league front, well, that the, the way they sort of collapsed a, a little bit and, and handed the initiative to City will will hurt. They've still had a, a pretty good season. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll get on to more on-pitch matters in a bit. But before that, let's sort of focus off the pitch, the big talking point of sort of the last two weeks, the European Super League. And uh, we've got, I suppose, with Manchester United, sort of a, a few paths to tread down regarding it and I suppose now what 10 days or so on from it crumbling what is the feeling around Manchester United regarding I suppose the failed plot for the European Super League? Um, I think the, the focus now has, has shifted onto the owners really and it, and it has brought up a lot of you know there's been resentment around the Glazers for, for 16 years really and it, it comes and goes probably the last significant protests against them with the green and gold protests about a decade ago now um but it, it's never really gone away last january there were songs in the ground against the woodward and, and glazers against edward Woodward and the glazers um but it, it does have quiet periods i mean they've been here 16 years i think people are, are used to it now but this you know the failed esl project has, has reignited that in fact joe glazer was vice chairman and, and was quoted on the release you know he he's a man who just doesn't communicate with united fans and it ignited a lot of anger, and I think there was anger also at his open letter, as an attempt at an apology to to fans, where he talked about 
you know, we talked about rebuilding trust, which is is laughable, really, because trust has never been there and they've never attempted to to win trust with fans. When they you know, when they took over in 2005, Joel Glazer did an interview with MUTV in the May, I think, and spoke about how important communication with fans is. And 16 years later, that open letter is the second time he's, he's ever communicated with fans. So it's been 16 years of silence, 16 years of, of taking dividends out of the club, of loading the club with debts. And I think this is just, you know, it, it, enough is enough. There's a lot of fans who were anti-Glazers without making their feelings known on a match day or who had just kind of accepted it for what it is. But I think those people are now firmly in the, the Glazers out court. There's, there's a planned protest ahead of the game on, on Sunday, so around 2pm today. There's a planned protest. It'll be interesting to see how many people turn up to that. So, you know, certainly a lot of the focus from the fans' point of view is is on the owners now. I'm not sure how easy it will be to, to get them out, but... I think the you know the, the fact they signed up for this project in the first place, and then the the contempt they were shown with, you know, with that letter where Joel Glazer's talking about communication with fans and, and rebuilding trust. When in sixteen years there's been no effort to do any of that, I think it was just you know it, it was the final straw for a lot of fans who are just sick of the way they've been treated. I think a lot of Liverpool fans as well were astonished mm. to see Joel Glazer's name on a release on the Liverpool website yeah. when the whole Super League plot was hatched. But it does feel as though kind of. United and Liverpool off the pitch, maybe at boardroom level, have been cozying up somewhat. Obviously, we had Project Big Picture in the autumn. Now we've had this as well. It, it seems a hard one to stomach for fans across the board. But, I mean, looking at Arsenal, for example, they're another club who have had big protests since the news and trying to get their owner, American owner, Stan Kroenke, out of the club. He's come out and said he's going nowhere. I suppose the exact same thing will happen at, at Manchester United, will it? The fans will sort of rattle as many cages as they want, but the Glazers just simply won't listen. Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, like we say, we, we've been here before. Obviously, there, w- there was a lot of protests in 2005 at the takeover. It came again when there was the, the Red Knights consortium in 2010 and the Green and Gold campaign got a lot of momentum. But, you know, they, they both kind of drifted away and it. It is the age-old dilemma of, of how do you force owners out who, who don't want to sell. And I think all United fans can do is, is make protests as, as visible as possible. There was obviously the... Um, breaching security at the training ground last week and, and holding up banners there. And I mean, that kind of thing is great for publicity for them. But, you know, the the Glazers have got a hide the size of Texas, really. And they're, you know, if they don't want to sell, I, I don't think they'll be bothered too much uh, about protests. And I think the other dilemma is, and I mean, this probably goes for all, all of the clubs, probably less Chelsea and, and City, who, for all this was a mistake, probably, you know, are, are quite happy with their owners. But certainly the American-owned clubs that, We've kind of got ourselves in in a position where these clubs are worth two, three, probably four billion pound in United's case, and there's just there's no good that can come of a football club being sold for three or four billion pound because you know a, a scouser made good ain't going to buy Liverpool for three billion pound, and Fred Doan at, at Betfred in Salford ain't going to buy United for four billion pound. It, it's not going to be a local boy done good that's buying this club as a community asset, or you know because because he wants to restore them to former glories. Anyone buying it at that price is buying it because they see more more cream to shave off the top really and that might be through a, a European Super League so you're looking at potentially Saudi Arabia which I don't think any re- any football fan really wants with, with all the things going on there and the issues there or a private equity firm or something like that who would probably make the, the Glazers and Stan Kroenke and, and John Henry look like a great set of lads really because I don't think private equity would, would care in the slightest if fans run happy at a European Super League so we've kind of got ourselves you know, this is a bigger football point I guess but we've got ourselves in a position where no good can come from these clubs being sold for, for three or four billion pounds. So as much as out of those 
I guess Liverpool, it's, you know, the Henry, John Henry's probably still got a bit of credit in the bank despite the mistakes they've made, but certainly at Arsenal and United, it, it feels like the final straw, but there's perhaps also a case of just, you know, be careful what you wish for as well, because selling is not necessarily the, the path to sort of redemption. Yeah, it's one of those you do a deal with the devil and what else do you expect? But anyway, we'll we'll move beyond the owners and now sort of the next rung down in terms of Manchester United. And when it was all coming to a head that the Super League plot was going to fail, Ed Woodward was one of those who immediately was announcing that he was resigning from his position. It's going to be at the end of the calendar year. I want to ask you your thoughts on that. It sounds like it was something that was always kind of planned. And I've seen as well Louis Saha, former Manchester United striker, tipping Edwin van der Sar, who's obviously at Ajax, to succeed him. The question on that, the second part of the question is, as much as, the, again, the fans would like to see that, he's not quite maybe the commercial kind of juggernaut that someone like Ed Woodward is. Yeah, I think dealing with, with the, the first bit, it, it, I think Ed was always planning to, to walk away this year, but you know the fact it was announced on, on Tuesday, I think it's impossible that, impossible as much as there might be attempts to, to make us think otherwise, I think it's impossible that the European Super League didn't play a, a part in it. Um, you know, he was in, integral in a lot of the discussions around it and whether he supported it or not, or had a U-turn, I think it, it's had a part. And he is, he's going to leave at, at the moment, it's the end of this calendar year, but I don't think anyone will be surprised if, if he went in the summer. Um, a lot of that will depend on a, a replacement. And Edwin van der is, is certainly a popular fan's choice. Um, in terms of fulfilling the role, I mean, Woodward's title is executive vice chairman, but to all intents and purposes, he's, he's chief executive, which is what van der Sar's done for five years at Ajax. He was marketing director at Ajax for a bit before that. But it, the chief executive role, you know, this role at United is more about the commercial side under the Glazers, probably. And that might not be where, where Van der Sar excels. I don't think it'd be any surprise if, if Richard Arnold, who is, I think he might be managing director at the moment, not too sure, but basically next in command under Woodward and has had a lot of commercial success. I think there'd be no surprise if he stepped up, but um, Van der Sar would... Mandasai would certainly be an appealing appointment, knowing the history of the club. Um, you know, he, he could certainly advise the Glazers on what it means around United. You know, he wouldn't go near a European Super League and he could have advised them about the fan reaction. I think it would also make a lot of sense in terms of, you know, that these clubs have got a lot of bridges to build at the Premier League and UEFA. And I think if, you know, if you went to the next, if United went to the next or Premier League meeting at the start of next season or a European Club Association meeting at the start of the next season and Edwin van der Sar was in their chair, I think that instantly brings you a, a bit of gravitas, really, and would go a long way to to building those bridges as a former player with with the record that he's got. So it would make sense on on that aspect as well. But I think it's very unlikely, and I would think it's most likely it's it's going to be an internal appointment. Behind enemy lines on the Blood Red Channel. Let's get away from the. Off pitch matters, and let's focus on the pitch because that's where we all actually care to focus our attentions. And this season for Manchester United, you sort of mentioned it is one of those where it does feel as though creeping progress more than sort of blistering progress that's been made. Three semi finals last year, this year, following the, the first leg against Roma in the Europa League, to all intents and purposes, it looks as though United are nailed on for a European final and second place in the Premier League. So slow and steady, I, I suppose, is, is is the phrase that's being used at Old Trafford right now. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there was any expectation of a title challenge at the start of the season. And then obviously come January, they were in a title challenge. Realistically, I think United's chance of winning the league was if 
City and Liverpool's standards continued to to slip. And obviously that has with Liverpool, but with City, you know, if this had been a season where you win the title with 82, 83 points, United might have been in it. But, you know, it looks like City are going to push 90. And I think that was always going to be improvement too far for, for United. Um, like I said at the start, the frustration is that, that they surrendered the initiative far too easily, but they have recovered it again. Um, I mean, they're, they're, a, they're an awfully confusing team, uh, as anyone who watches them regularly will know. They can go from the sublime to the ridiculous pretty quickly, as they did on Thursday night. Um, and they've, you know, their, their recent Premier League record is, is extraordinary. They've only lost one of the last 26 Premier League games. And that was at home to Sheffield United, who were relegated with about six, seven games to go. So, you know, it, it's hard to make sense of them, really. And, and their away record is fantastic. 24 unbeaten in the league away from home, but they have lost four at home. So, you know, they've certainly dropped points in games that you can't drop points in if you're going to challenge for the title. Um, it'd be no surprise next year if it's back to needing 95 plus to win the title. And if, if we're presuming next year is going to be a more normal season. So they will have to improve again. But Soscar has, has made kind of this this progress, his buzzword, really. But once you finish second, the, there's only one more step to climb, really. So next year, they have to have a, a much more significant title challenge. I think what happened on Thursday night will probably be quite important for them. They were getting a bit of a tag of, um, you know, maybe chokers is too hard, but fundamentally, I guess that's what it is with, with four successive semi-final defeats. The way the title challenge unraveled as, you know, the moment they hit top spot, that they were getting this tag of kind of, you know, struggling under under big game pressure and, and when titles are in view. And at halftime on Thursday, they probably felt that was happening again with the way they'd surrendered a good start, conceded two incredibly soft goals. But they, they recovered really well. They, they were outstanding second half and, and blew Roma away. And I think mentally that, that will do an awful lot for them. And Europa League-wise, they really should go on and, and win that now because out of the four teams left, they are easily the best team left in that competition. So they really should go on and, and win that final. Regarding the manager, then we'll get on to a few of the players in a bit. But regarding Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, of course, when Rio Ferdinand said sign, give him the contract, Ole's at the wheel after the, the PSG game, it, it sort of blew up really in the end in Solskjaer's face. But Jurgen Klopp, famously when he came to Liverpool, said it was about turning doubters into believers. And I just wonder if that's sort of the mantra for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer almost in terms of how he's kind of rebuilt things ever since. And we'll get on to Bruno Fernandes in a bit, kind of how since he's come in, it's it's only really gone one way for Manchester United. And whilst he does often get derided, he Jurgen Klopp likewise just drawing the, the sort of parallel, was reaching all these finals but never winning until mm. obviously what happened in Madrid. And now it feels as though with Solskjaer, maybe he might be getting to that kind of level where it is time now to see whether he can deliver, put together a title bid and if he can, as you said there, secure the, the Europa League. Yeah, definitely. I, I suppose it's, you know, when Klopp said doubters in, into believers, I guess it was more about the club as a whole, really. I don't think anyone doubted Klopp when he was appointed, whereas with Solskjaer, the doubts have been about the manager, really. And, you know, that that's understandable. It, it, it's inescapable that had he not been a former Manchester United player, he wouldn't have got this job. He wouldn't have been anywhere near the job. Um you know, there, there's no way United would have employed a manager who was relegated at Cardiff and, and managing a second stint at Molde if they had no United connections. So that is the only reason he got the job. Obviously, uh, he had a brilliant start by virtue of not being Jose Mourinho, really, and just, just you know, relaxing everything a little bit. But he, you know, he, he has had an awful lot of stick. And I think a lot of that is because of the fact that he is a manager who got Cardiff relegated and, and managed at, at Molde. You know, that's not... CV that would normally get you a job at United and 
there has always been doubts about whether he's the right man. And when you're competing in the Premier League against when Pochettino was at Spurs, against Klopp, against Guardiola, you know, his his CV compared to them is, you know, it is non-existent, really. So it, it's understandable there was always going to be question marks. He certainly had some bad spells at United. And, you know, I mean, Edward would get an awful lot of criticism as do the Glazers. Perhaps the best thing that they will actually have done in recent years is sticking by Solskjaer when it would have been easy to, to pull the trigger in and sack him, really, because there have been some very poor spells. Um, since Fernandez arrived over the last, kind of, what is it, 16, 17 months now, they have been much improved. I think they've lost four of 46 or 47 Premier League games since he arrived, and the consistency is there now. There's still the odd mad performance, but they're, they're certainly being reduced. And, you know, it is it is indisputable that there has been progress. The, the challenge for Solskjaer now is to prove that he's a manager who can take a team to to 95, 98 points and, and challenge for the title. But I think whatever happens is, you know, if it didn't work out and, and say they slumped a third next year and he, and he did leave, I think whoever replaced him would, would owe him, still owe him a debt of gratitude. And, you know, I, I think considering the, the state the dressing room was in when Mourinho left, you know, I think he's done a great job of rebuilding this squad, of bringing the average age of the squad down. He's improved individual players. You know, you look at Luke Shaw, who is probably the best left-back in the league now or certainly one of the best left-backs in, in the league um, compared to where he was under Mourinho. So I think, you know, I think generally you have to say he's, he's done a really good job and you can understand why there was always doubts about him. But I think, you know, I, I suppose the, the, the true test is if, if he left United this summer, he'd get a much better job than, than going back to Mulder. And, you know, you have to say that that's probably credit to him. Yeah, no, definitely. Let's talk about Bruno Fernandes then because... Those terms, transformational, generational sort of signing and performer that he's been for Manchester United. A lot of comparisons early part of the season to Eric Cantona. But certainly this second half of the season, it doesn't feel as though it's been all such a reliance on him. Of course, he's still there. He's being consistent and putting in the performances. But Paul Pogba and certainly Edinson Cavani seem to really have come to the fore. Yeah, they have. And until Thursday night, Fernandez had had his, his quietest spell at United, really. I think he'd only got one goal in, in 10 games before that. So he had quiet and down. But I think, you know, I think since, I mean, this calendar year, Pogba's been United's best player for me. Um, I think since he returned from his injury about a month ago now, I think he's been the best player in the Premier League. And at the moment, he looks in, this is the best he's played for United in his, what, five years there now by a long, long way. He looks the kind of unstoppable world-class midfielder that, that everyone knew he knew he was, and certainly in this left-wing role um, that he's playing at the moment, probably not a role you'd have expected him in, but he, he's absolutely thriving there, and he does, he does. I mean, he just looks world-class, I think, at, at the moment, and he's he's been incredible. His his role in the first goal for United on on Thursday was just, you know, the, the combination of immense strength and skill that very few players possess, and and he is one of them, and. It was noticeable on Thursday, really, that United got to 2-2 through two goals that were, were Pog made entirely, really, by Pogba Fernandes and Cavani. And they're probably the three closest things United have got to, to world-class players. When the score was 2-2, there were still elements of that performance that had been a shambles. But when you've got three players who are, are world-class or very close to it, then if you give them the ball, and, and they'll do world-class things. And they're certainly key to United going forward. The concern probably is that Two of them, we don't know if they're going to be in next season or the season after. So it's not a long-term solution. But at the moment, the fact they're all playing close together as well, I think that makes them a match for any team in the Premier League. 
How big has sort of Cavani's contribution been? And I suppose as much on perception as anything, because even maybe going back to before Fernandez came in, a lot of Manchester United transfer dealings, the amount they paid for Harry Maguire, it was kind of all getting derided. But it feels since that Fernandez deal that their transfer dealings that they've struck have sort of all come up trumps for them, including Cavani. A lot of people sceptical about what he was going to offer, but he he seems to have been a, a, a real solid acquisition. Yeah, I think Solskjaer's record in the transfer market is pretty solid generally, but there's certainly been a move away. In the first summer, it was noticeable that they were targeting British players and, and domestic players. And, you know, they're behind the scenes, the club made no secret that that, that was an avenue they were pursuing. They signed James Wampasaka and Maguire that summer. They'd, they'd made it clear they wanted Sancho the summer afterwards. The problem with that is that, you know, Premier League clubs don't need to sell. So if you want the best Premier League centre-half that's British, who was probably Maguire at the time, you have to pay £80 million for him. And you're also signing players who don't have that winning, who haven't really won many things before. You know, Wan-Bissaka had won nothing at Palace, Maguire had won nothing at Leicester, Daniel James had won nothing. And I think United realised that last summer and the players they signed, starting with Fernandes in the January and then Alex Tellez, Donny van der Beek, Edison Cavani, had all won domestic titles with their clubs. Um, Cavani and, and Fernandez had, had won a lot. Um, so I think that's added a real kind of winner's mentality to, to the dressing room. And I think that's been pretty vital for United that it has transformed them behind the scenes. And, and Cavani's experience has, has played a big part in that. It was derided at the time. United had made a big thing of, of targeting younger players. So signing a 33-year-old free agent was was questioned, but he certainly proved his worth. And, you know, I think at the moment it certainly seems more likely than not that he goes and, and goes back to South America. I don't think he's enjoyed a, a greater Manchester winter in lockdown um, and he's certainly not alone in in that regard. Unfortunately, we can't all escape back to South America, but um, it does seem that, that that's the way it's heading. But if he does go at the moment, he's certainly going to leave with, with United wanting more because the form he's been in over the last month has been the best, the best form of his United career. I suppose it, it it goes to sort of show Luis Suarez is sort of tentatively being linked with a maybe a return to Liverpool. Co- obviously, compatriot and close friend of Edison Cavani's, but it, I, I suppose it sort of does go to show. Whilst there is always the clamour for the next hot property, if you can get a experienced talisman in at the top end of the pitch, they can sort of do uh, no end of good. Certainly, thinking of Cavani recently, I think he's got what five goals in his last five games. The yeah. performance he put in against Tottenham was an absolute masterclass. Yeah, it, it was. He was he was superb against Tottenham. I think movement-wise, in terms of movement around the box, he's he's arguably the best striker in the world at, at finding space. Um, his you know against Roma, he missed two really good chances at, at the start of the second half and end of the first half, and yet the goal he took just after that was you know a first half half volley finish from fifteen yards that he just bent into the top corner. It was a a supreme finish and his assist for Greenwood's goal was was brilliant as well. And I think, I, you know, I mentioned that experience, but I think Solskjaer has also valued the impact he's had on, on people like Mason Greenwood, particularly. I think they've struck up quite a good relationship just despite the age difference. And for a player like Greenwood at, at 19, who, who wants to play centre-forward eventually, learning from someone like Cavani is just manner from heaven for him, really. And, and it's kind of showing that this is what United are missing. If he does go this year, then they are just going to have to find the money to, to sign a striker. Obviously, Haaland would be the dream, but they need someone. When you compare Cavani and Martial as, as number nines, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a different game, really. Um, Cavani just offers so much more. He's more energetic, better pressing, 
better link play. You know, Martial still feels like he's better coming off the left, even though that's kind of a position Rashford and Pogba are fighting over at the moment. And if Cavani does leave and United go into next season with Martial as their centre-forward again, then I think that is a, a significant drop-off. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see, obviously, what is to come in the, the transfer window for them. But let's get on to the game itself then briefly. And I think it's eight winless visits to Old Trafford now for Liverpool. Of course, it was the first place points were dropped last season en route to winning the league title. But I just wonder for a game like this with Liverpool needing to obviously try and get in the top four, but that beginning to fade and United pretty much nailed on for second spot and no crowd being in there. What kind of impact do you think that might have on it all? Difficult to say, I guess, really. Like you say, United have, well, Liverpool have probably got more to play for. United are securing in second now. I think there was perhaps an argument that Solskjaer might have rotated his squad a bit before Thursday night, but they won that game so comfortably that it feels he can take a risk in, in playing his, his strongest team. And Solskjaer knows what these games mean. And the other um, issue, I suppose, is the fact that if City um, win or City have won, then United can can hand them the title. If Liverpool win it at Old Trafford, City will win the league. And that is the last thing United will want. United will want City to at least have to win it on their own terms rather than give it away. So I think that will act as a motivator for, for them. So although Liverpool have got more to play for, I think that will prove to be a, a motivating factor for United. And the fact that it's behind closed doors will will have an impact. But, you know, on, on recent form, I think United will have to be fairly confident. As you're explaining there, all the permutations, I was thinking, would you be saying United don't want to hand the title to City? Liverpool certainly don't want to either, yeah. albeit obviously their title defence is, is long gone. I think everyone just wants to uh, see City lose at, at Palace, they are, aren't they? Manchester City. But we'll, we'll have to sort of wait and see how it does all play out. But Tyrone, thanks a lot for your time. It's, uh, it's, it's been good to uh, chew the fat with you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot, Guy. Brilliant stuff. Well, thanks for joining us here on this edition of Behind Enemy Lines on Blood Red. Do check out the post-game podcast following the action at Old Trafford. We'll be back then. But until then, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Behind Enemy Lines podcast on the Blood Red channel.